our relationships are patterned from childhood. We're actually taught that it's not okay. It's not cool to set boundaries. We don't want you to set boundaries, right? Like that's often the messaging that we receive as young girls, as young women is your boundaries are actually not welcome because they're highly inconvenient to me. Welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Walker. As a former naturopathic doctor and anthropologist, I align the intersection of personal performance, purpose, and innovative thinking in badass women working to change the world as entrepreneurs and go-getters. Anthropology is the study and science of what makes an entrepreneur think, feel, and perform in a path compelled by a vision for helping others, solving problems, while building a life on your own terms. Together, we are exploring the health, mindset, and strategies that distinguish the world's best entrepreneurs. This is the Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to episode 258 of the Anthropology Podcast. I am your host, Megan Walker, and we are hanging out squarely at the Anthropology intersection today of mindset, health, and entrepreneurship. And I'm so excited to be welcoming back my friend and colleague, Dr. Shamala Kiru. And Dr. Shamala is the founder of Kiru Psychotherapy Clinic. She is an expert in high-performance relationships, and she is just on the brink of, and by the brink of, I mean, I'm going to tell you at the end of this episode how you can participate in the launch of her new book called The Emotionally Intelligent Woman. And in this podcast today, what I wanted to break down or what I call the big five, the big five things that get in our way as entrepreneurial women. Some of them include imposter syndrome and this idea of decision-making and self-authorization and how do we set compassionate boundaries and how do we get past what people think of this? All of this and more is coming up right now. Super excited to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Shamala Kiru. Dr. Shamala Kiru, welcome back to the Anthropology Podcast. Megan, my friend, it is so awesome to be here with you again. Well, it is always awesome to be with you. And we were just chit-chatting. I was looking at the time. I was like, oh, we actually better hit record or we're going to spend an hour just sort of catching up and and really sort of debriefing on the on the state of the world. And I was like, this is all the kind of stuff we should be talking about with everyone. You've got a new book coming out. We are talking about the the state of the world and how to level up in our own self-actualization. Before we jump in, because I know some of my listeners have not had an opportunity to meet you yet, can you give all of us a little bit of an overview of who you are, what you've been up to in the world, and why you are now so passionate about talking about high-functioning relationships and emotionally intelligent women? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent close to two decades practicing as a registered psychotherapist, so I no longer practice anymore. And in that time, I specialized in couple and family therapy. So that's where the relationship piece really came in for me. I actually did my doctorate specifically in couple and family therapy, and I now run a virtual clinic and we specialize in serving individuals, couples, and families virtually across Canada. So it's really cool, really accessible ways in which people can basically get their hands on treatment and at times where it has been really difficult in the past, especially when we're treating couples and families. And I have now moved into the space of really training high-powered women how to amplify their success using emotional intelligence. So I have a company called the EQ Code Training Labs, 
And we work specifically with professional women and female entrepreneurs. And we teach them skills around emotional mastery, around fearless communication, and really how to leverage and elevate their relationships so that they're able to lead with confidence in every area of their lives. There's so many juicy things that I'm like, fearless communication. Like, ugh, that just sounds so much healthier than passive aggressive communication right off the bat. Okay, before we jump into some of those pieces, can you just define emotional intelligence for us so we're all on the same page? It's a great question. And I've learned because I've been having so many conversations recently on different podcasts around emotional intelligence. I've been speaking with other experts in the field. And what I've come to understand is that everyone has a slightly different definition of emotional intelligence. So the way I define it and the way I understand it is that it is a set of skills that allows us to have, first of all, mastery over ourself and our own life. That's, for me, the primary pillar of emotional intelligence. It's really about self-leadership. And then from that place, we can then move into having mastery in our relationships and in our careers. So that's really about relationship management, understanding how to communicate. That's where some of those other skills come into play, Megan, like the, the fearless communication, the boundary setting, the elevated relationships, decision-making. I know we're talking about some pretty juicy things today that for me really fall into to that intersection between how I lead myself and how I lead others and my life. Okay. Let's talk about boundaries before we jump into any of these pieces. And I just want to acknowledge in that answer, it's this notion of mastery of self. A funny, like funny story. I was listening to someone and they were talking about, they were doing some personal development work and they had read all of these books and, you know, I could watch this evolution happen and they loved being a resource for other people. And I remember someone, it was just one of those casual moments where someone came in and told them something. I've never seen anything switch so quickly. They told them this person, this piece of news, which was deeply personal to them. And they, it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They went from being this you know, intellectual resource of personal development to just like their head exploding in in 30 seconds. And I was like, there we go. You know, there's the mastery of the concepts and there's the talking the talk. And then there's this notion of, you know, truly like this is this is deep inner work and you can't fake it. It, it truly is this notion of mastery of self, which is an evolution. And I have found in my own life that one of the things that must be in place for me to be able to do any of this kind of work is this idea of boundaries. And you mentioned that when you were talking about this notion of emotional intelligence. Why are women inherently challenged at putting effective boundaries in place in their life? Like, do we just not know how to do it? Do we do it differently than men? What's what's the background behind that? It's such a great question. Such a big question. I think there's so many different elements. We could literally do a conversation on each one of these pieces, but a few things I'll highlight. Do we not know how to do it? Yeah, not only do we not know how to set boundaries, Meg, we are actually taught the exact opposite of boundary setting, right? Like at a very core level in terms of the way our relationships are patterned from childhood, we're actually taught that it's not okay. It's not cool to set boundaries. We don't want you to set boundaries, right? Like that's often the messaging that we receive as young girls, as young women is your boundaries are actually not welcome because they're highly inconvenient to me. So whether that is said directly or indirectly, that is a lot of the messaging that we get. We're also taught that it is our responsibility and it's our duty to really consistently and constantly consider 
how we are affecting other people. So our choices, how our choices affect other people, how, you know, what we say affects other people. We're constantly being called to overly consider other people's thoughts, feelings, and actions. Do we socialize girls differently than boys that way? I think so. You know, I'd like to say that it's different. Like I have a daughter, you've got three. You know, I'm sure we're both very, very conscious of the ways in which we speak to our girls about how they show up to their own lives. But I still think there's so much conditioning that I'm actively trying to undo with my own daughter But there's so much cultural conditioning that says that women, like our place in relationships, and in my opinion, our relationships are just like a microcosm of the larger community. Like our place is to not rock the boat, right? Is to keep things, you know, play nice, play safe, like all people please, all make sure everybody's okay, attend to the needs of everybody else. And so I think it's all of these, there's so many narratives, I think, that make it so difficult for us to set boundaries. How do we set boundaries? I preface this too with, you know, I I think a lot of people say, I appreciate the question, but what I'm really feeling inside is everyone thinks I'm a bitch if I set boundaries. So how do we compassionately and confidently set boundaries without feeling like we are going to trigger this other narrative? So I think the first piece, so I know you and I have chatted for me, when I think about any relationship management or leadership strategy, I think of it within the context of a broader construct of emotional intelligence. So the first piece for me is always those emotional mastery skills. And I know we're not going deep on that today, but in a nutshell, emotional mastery is the ability to remain calm and confident regardless of external circumstances, including other people's reactions, which is the biggest thing we're afraid of when we even think about setting a boundary is, oh my God, what is she going to say? What is he, right? What are they going to do? What are they going to think? Right? These are the things. Like literally had this conversation with an entrepreneur yesterday. So the first piece is that ability to self-regulate. That's what I mean by calm and confident, the ability to self-regulate regardless of what's happening around you. Then for me, the next pillar that really amplifies our success is the ability to have difficult conversations regardless of the outcome. I listened to one of your podcast episodes recently. Do you know which one I'm talking about? You were talking about the decisions you've made for 2022. Oh, right. I loved it. I loved it when you talked about making a decision to have difficult conversations and not avoid them, right? So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one. I thought you were talking to me for a second because once I say something, I can't find it again. (laughs) Your people. No, your people need to go back and listen to it because... You know, it really, but like I listened and I'm like, yeah, this is why we don't do it. This is why we avoid because it's just so uncomfortable. It just doesn't feel good to have difficult conversations. But those pieces, we really need to dial those pieces in, in order to be able to set boundaries from a place of integrity, from a place that aligns with our goals. And I think one of the biggest reasons women struggle so much with decision-making is because we don't actually know how to make decisions that align with our goals because we've been raised to make decisions that accommodate others. This is the reason why boundaries are so difficult for us. Totally real life example. It was even with my daughter, which she and I sit down, we watch Gilmore Girls together. She was really excited for this date. And then last night she had 
virtual soccer. It went till 9.30 at night. I didn't know she had, I didn't know, like it popped up. Anyone who follows me on Instagram, you know that my children's activities pop up in my calendar and it's a surprise to me every single day. Anyway, we'd plan this thing and she was so distraught. She was like, we had planned this date. And I said, honey, we can't start the date at 10 o'clock at night. But I first said yes. And then I said no, because I was like trying to figure out her feelings. And then I, I just said to her, I was like, Naya, I just had a really bad moment of boundaries there. We cannot start this thing at 10 o'clock. We'll put it in here. But it was so true. I was like, how do I find a solution that is accommodating to everybody's feelings and needs at all times instead of just being like another night, hun, we're going to have to do it another night. I love that you shared that example. It's always easier for me to give strategies with practical examples because you asked me a question. I didn't fully answer. It was like, how do we actually do it compassionately? Using that example, I think the first thing, Meg, is just it's pausing. Like we often don't even give ourselves permission to pause and assess or reassess. Yes, maybe you had made this commitment. Yes, maybe you had really great intentions to have this, you know, date night with your daughter and things shifted. And we feel like we need to react rather than pause so we can respond. And I have this added thing I where I try to fix everything. And I know not everyone's a fixer, but I'm definitely a fixer. I really have to catch myself to not go into that like automatic conditioning mode. And you're so right on the pause piece. And I say this to my kids all the time. If you need an answer right now, the answer is no. But if you give me 20 minutes to think about all of the considerations and a better solution, then we might get to where you want. So they now know that there's two versions of where we could end up. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about this boundary piece. And you started to allude to this notion of goal setting. And before we had this conversation today, I said, there is one concept I really want to unpack. And I'm deeply fascinated by it. So I'm going to set this up for our listeners. I don't know if this is a real term. This is a term that I use to describe a situation. And the term that I use is this idea of self-authorization. And I have found as I have started, well, it, it started in clinic, but I saw it a little bit differently because the commitment level was frankly smaller. By the time someone came into my office, they were either in so much pain or had already given themselves permission to move forward. We didn't, I didn't see it quite as often. The concept is this thing called self-authorization and it is where we cannot, I see this much more prominently in women. So I'm going to generalize. We cannot make a decision to move forward in alignment with something we say we want without permission from the perceived stakeholders in our lives. And I identified to you before we jumped in, Shamla, these are sometimes people's parents. Oh, well, let me just talk to my parents about, I need, I need their approval before I buy the house with my husband or before I say yes to the job or before I sign the contract or before I buy a cappuccino. It's varying degrees of commitment in life, but it's a fascinating thing. So parents, the self-authorization need with parents, I find really interesting. I find it with partners. So, oh, I would love to make this decision for my business, but I'm just going to talk to my partner about it first. Meanwhile, this person is, is identifying and saying, I want to be a, an autonomous CEO. I earn the money. It is my intellectual property. And yet, we're seeking permission from that second person. So I'm fascinated with that piece. And then the last one, our colleagues. And then it is less explicitly, oh, let me go ask my colleagues for permission. It's more, well, I need assurance that my peer group is totally cool with me moving forward. And then if I know there's there's no threats or no one thinks poorly of me because of this, then I'm going to move ahead. And in all cases to me, this comes back to what I'm lumping everything in this idea of self-authorization. And I'm trying to find a question in here but more than a question, I'm just really interested in your perspective on how we unpack this concept, because I feel strongly that this is one of the single most impeding factors in women's attempt to move their careers forward. 
And I'm finding it really like aggressively manifesting between the ages of, I'm going to say like 30 and 45. Like when people are stuck here and wanting to invest, the self-authorization piece is like the test of that phase of the career. So as the psychotherapist, as the person with the, with the arena of expertise, I would love for you to unpack this concept because I just think it's so important to our progress. I think so too. And I like the term. I love, first of all, I love your terms. You come up with these terms and they're... Can we put this in like the realm of... Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think we should. Well, you know what? I think it describes it really well. And I'd love to just really like, yeah, no question here, but dialogue. I think what came to mind for me as you you were using this term and as I was digesting it, a couple of concepts. One is self-doubt. Like I think that a big piece of this, like decision-making, right? Like we're talking about the ability or the inability to make decisions for ourselves. When I hear self-authorization, that's what I hear, Meg, is am I able to make and own decisions for myself, for my life, for my business? And sometimes these are really small decisions, as you were talking about when you were a practitioner, and it might have been for a session with you. And now we're talking perhaps about bigger decisions that might really move the needle on people's businesses, which would require a bigger investment more money, bigger decision. And I think at the core of this, at the crux of this is what I see so often, which is self-doubt. Like I think women by and large, we are plagued with self-doubt. Like we do not trust ourselves. We don't trust ourselves. And I often define confidence as a deep sense of trust in yourself a deep sense of being able to trust yourself to make decisions that align with your values, to make decisions that align with your goals, to really be able to own those decisions and own the consequences, which is the second piece that I heard in self-authorization. And why this is so difficult is the other piece to it, I think, is abdicating responsibility. Because if I make a decision, if you say to me, Shamla, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, I don't know, whatever you want. And you're like, no, really, what do you want for dinner? I don't know, Meg, whatever you want. No, Shemla, you pick. And I pick sushi and you hate sushi. Now I need to take responsibility for the fact that we're sitting down and having a dinner that you're not enjoying. I do love sushi, by the way. So do I. This is an example I often use with the women I work with because I think so many of us have been in that situation of someone, a partner saying, what do you want for dinner? I don't know. What would you like? And it's part of that is just, I don't want to take responsibility for making the wrong decision. And so if I say to you, let me ask my husband, then I I don't have to take responsibility for it, right? Like he gave the stamp of approval or he said, no, we can't afford it, but it's not me making that decision. And if you were hypothetically coaching a CEO through this scenario, and she's like, this conversation is a significant impediment to the forward momentum of my business. How would you hypothetically recommend she place the conversation with prospective clients? I feel like saying to them, well, why don't you want to take responsibility for your dreams is a little bit confrontational. So in the realm of emotional mastery, how do we come to that place? How would you bring someone to that that state of realization around that uh, responsibility piece? Because I think that's really key. And, and honestly, when I see anyone who's practiced taking responsibility in their life, they are very good at making decisions because they understand how to really game theory out the consequences of the choices that they're going to make. So for me, the way I like to approach difficult conversations is to ask questions. And the question could be something like, 
you know, what I'm hearing is that part of what makes decision making difficult might be the responsibility goes along with giving yourself the authority to make this decision. And if we're honest with ourselves, right, even anyone listening to this episode, like ask yourself that question. If that lands, if that touches something, like if something feels uncomfortable inside, it's landed somewhere. There's a party like that resonates. It's like, ooh, shoot. Yeah, I have a hard time taking responsibility. I'm afraid to take responsibility. So I like to start with inviting the person into a place of introspection and really identifying, yeah, this is something I struggle with. And then asking it on the flip side, what would it be like if you were able to take the responsibility required to actually give yourself the permission that you needed to achieve your goals? Like what would be different in your life? How would you behave differently? What choices would you be making? I love that. And it also takes people to that future state. Yes, exactly. Right. So it's like sort of identifying what is being triggered in the moment and then imagining what it would be like if I didn't have this trigger, which changes your whole state. Absolutely. What is the relationship here between this, this idea of self-authorization and a need for approval? Or is there one? I think it is connected. I think it's connected to the piece around both concepts that we've discussed, the self-doubt and the abdicating responsibility. Because if I doubt myself and in order to feel confident moving forward and in order to make a decision, I need you to tell me, yeah, that's a great, that's a great choice, Shamala. That totally makes sense. I need that to come from outside of me, that self-approval, right? That approval from somebody else. If I consistently need that, that is going to massively get in the way of my ability to make decisions. And it becomes these self-fulfilling prophecies in terms of how we have these elements uh, start to play out. So we've identified it and we're starting to put language to some of these pieces. How do we start to transition someone from that state of, you are right, I am scared of taking responsibility. So I'm going to spend the next three years working through that and then I'll, I'll circle back here. How do we expedite that access to courage, really, to start to take responsibility for some of these big movements in one's life? So there's a couple things I like to do. The first thing is getting crystal clear on people's goals. I know you often use the language of purpose, right. and I like that as well, right? But just getting really, really clear on what are your goals. I know with the, the community that you work with could be for this quarter, could be for our time together inside of this program, could be for the next year, but what are your goals and what decisions do you need to make that would align with those goals? Don't think about anybody else. Don't think about parents. Don't think about partner. Don't think about colleagues. Like, don't think about all those things that get in the way. But what are the decisions, the concrete decisions, whether that's around your time, your schedule, how you're spending your money, your resources, who you're surrounding yourself with, kind of almost like blue sky it, right? Like, what are the decisions that align with those goals? And while these decisions might feel really big, I think the way we practice that is actually what are the small decisions that you can make every single day that you're really afraid to make and really uncomfortable making that's simply going to help you to flex and exercise that decision-making muscle? It's a muscle. It's simply a muscle. It's a mindset muscle, actually, the ability to make decisions. As parents, thinking about some of these concepts, like even this whole idea of self-authorization and responsibility, 
you know, I love supporting my kids and taking risks and, and other elements. I am really aware of the self-authorization piece. What recommendations would you make to parents in terms of structures and frameworks to consciously integrate into your communication or how you function as a family so that all of your kids, in particular, your girls have an opportunity to really own this idea of self-authorization, which I will just frame is very different than what my 10-year-old is going through right now, where I would also say she's attempting to self-authorize, but that is not the version of self-authorization that I am necessarily looking to amp up with this healthy form of self-authorization. You know, like I'm always going to give you an answer that goes back to the crux of it, which is in order to support your children in self-authorization as a parent, you must be willing to let go of control, right? Like that's that's the biggest piece is you've got to be willing to say, they're going to do it their way. It's not going to be done exactly the way that I. they're going to make decisions that don't fully align with me as long as no boundaries are being crossed. That's okay. There's freedom here, right? So that's the number one thing is knowing that you will need to let go of control. If this is a skill that you are committed in fostering and instilling in your children. And then I would say it's really about understanding like what are the like firm boundaries of decision making, right? So if we're talking about packing lunches, just to use a sort of mundane example, but what are the boundaries around nutrition for you as a parent? And then where do they have room and where can they make choices? And is there freedom for them to make choices that you might not make for them. Like if you see them packing, you know, more treats or snacks than you would like them to do, is that okay? Like, can you allow them to make that decision and feel what that feels like? It's interesting as you're saying that, I can see how so many people came from families of origin that facilitated this epidemic of challenge with respect to self-authorization. The product of the 80s babies where these parents do all these things for you and it's their way or the highway as it were. That's right. And I think if I wonder, you know, with your community, if we all really asked ourselves, what was it like for me growing up around decision-making? What was it like? Like, did I make decisions? Did I feel like, was I allowed to make decisions? What were the implicit and explicit messages that I received around decision-making? And what would happen if I made a decision that didn't align with somebody else's priorities? What would happen? What were the consequences? Some mic drop right there, aligning with other people's priorities. I feel like there's an opportunity every single day for people to practice these skills. When emails arrive in their inbox and you recognize that that is other people's agendas for your time mm -hmm. and their priorities for what you can do for them. Yes. Yes. I encounter this every day in my inbox. Where I'm like, I just don't have time for this right now. And I start to get resentful. And I just snooze it to tomorrow because it's not it's not going to be the end of the world. But I, there's these micro opportunities throughout the course of the day where we can start to put these pieces into practice, where we can move closer to this notion of mastery of self. We just really have to, we have to include them. We have to not make them all the exclusion criteria. I have a few other things I really want to get into on this idea. I am totally punching and grabbing all of the key things in conversations that I hear over and over again are holding women back. The boundary piece, the self-authorization piece, and then the classic, we can't have a conversation around some of these big rocks if we don't talk about the notion of imposter syndrome. How do we break that down in our own lives? How do we recognize when it's happening? I do this in my own world. We all have these moments where we over-index everyone else's capacities and under-index and undervalue our own capacity for contribution. 
Why do we do that? I'm curious, before I answer that question, I I think uh, as we were chatting, I said, you know, this is a question I get asked a lot. How are you currently seeing imposter syndrome showing up in your community? So I can answer it a little more. Sure. And just for all of our listeners, when we talk about community, we've got, I mean, we've got entrepreneurs across the board here. And I'll talk specifically because I've had conversations the last few weeks with a lot of practitioners. And where I'm seeing it manifest in particular for them is, you know, I'll say, you should be applying to speak on that stage. Let's move you into a state of authority with respect to your subject matter. And that's typically either people are ready and they're like, yes, or I need a few more years under my belt before I'm the authority on that. Or, you know, she's a big deal. I can't be on the same stage as her. So there's this constant talking myself out of it. I used to do the same thing. I had this idea that when I turned 40, I somehow needed to be 40 to have authority in the world in general. There's literally projects I shelved. I'm like, those are my 40-year-old projects. And my biggest regret is not dealing with that like 10 years ago, because I probably would have brought so many other things to fruition. So I think we've we've all done this. We all have these weird benchmarks that are non-specific and we'll know them when we see them. I think it, for a lot of us, it, it manifests this imposter syndrome. I will be ready when. We just don't know how to fill in that blank. But a lot of time it's it's about going after opportunities and being super scared that they're going to be in those opportunities and not have the credentials of the other people around them. Yeah. So what I hear in that is a bit of like fear of the unknown, right? Because I think anytime you're feeling some imposter syndrome, it does mean that you're at least considering stepping it up to the next level, whatever that next level is for you. I've learned that imposter syndrome doesn't have to be a bad thing. You can totally feel it and say, awesome, this is just an indication that I am consistently playing a bigger game. That's all it has to mean. And to feel that sense of not readiness for that next level, I think, can we normalize that? If you were truly the embodiment of a ready for that next level, you would already be there. But there's something about that step from here to that next level. There's something about taking that step from here to there that transforms you, that changes you, right? And then when you get there, you show up as the woman that's ready to be there. Mm -hmm. But you're not her down here. I know I'm using my hands and this is a podcast, but I think your audience will understand, right? What I'm saying here, right? So I think really, Meg, for me, What I would encourage your audience to do is really, can we lean into feeling that not readiness as a normal part of entrepreneurship, as a normal part of leadership, as a normal part of making the decision to play a bigger game? You could stay safe, but I think if you had decided to stay safe, you probably wouldn't be listening to this particular podcast. Probably not. And I, I, you know, I feel like the comfort zone is the killer of dreams, right? That should not be where we're trying to head. I I love this idea that we recalibrate imposter syndrome. And when that comes up and feeling inadequate is going, oh, maybe I am actually in the right room. This is a barometer of an opportunity for growth. I will lean into it as opposed to lean away to it. It takes that self-talk and it takes that practice to recognize we're in it. It's kind of like, you know, jumping into an ice bath, the first time you do it, you immediately want to pull your feet out. And then when you decide that you're going to have an ice bath every morning, and it's part of your conscious routine, well, we start to acclimatize ourselves to that as something that actually can serve us in a bigger way. And what if we said to ourselves, oh my goodness, if I don't feel that imposter syndrome at least a handful of times every single year, then what am I doing? Like, what am I really doing, right? Like, am I 
am I pushing the envelope on my own mission? And part of it, I would suspect too, and I know there will be individuals who go, well, when I'm in this imposter syndrome state, I actually can't manage the anxiety. I can't manage, I don't know how to bring that out of comfort zone under control. What is your advice to them? Because I don't, I don't want those individuals who are, are feeling uh, anxious to be left without tools and to be left without an opportunity for growth. How do we make sure that we're accommodating more people in this movement of recalibration? You know, for me, anxiety, not necessarily easy to deal with, but quite simple. Anxiety is simply the focus on things that we can't control. That's all it is. Like any time you are feeling anxious, anytime I'm feeling anxious, if I were to look at what I am giving attention to, I am giving attention to things that are outside of my control. And with imposter syndrome, the biggest pieces that we focus on are what will other people think of me? How will other people perceive me in this space or in this capacity? And so we're immediately making a choice to focus our energy and our attention on something that's going to provoke anxiety because we're focusing on what will others think of me. So one of the simplest ways, I am careful not to use the word easy because I understand it's not easy, but one of the simplest ways to manage anxiety is to make the concerted effort to stop focusing on the things that you can't control and to start taking action on the things that you can control. So when you feel like an imposter, what are the things you can action that move you towards your goals? It's funny, those things that I can't control, I'm almost relieved when I see those things in a room or in my life because I'm like, ah, oh, that is one less thing for me to have to deal with. And there are so many things in the world right now that we actually can't control. And there is an opportunity to totally redirect your energy because no matter how much energy you put towards it, you're not going to move the needle on that, on that entity. But it sounds like for you and like, you know, I known each other for some time now, like it just sounds like that, that's sort of the way your brain is wired, right? Your brain looks at the things you can't control and you're like, great, I don't need to worry about it. But not to, I'm not reckless in that, right? I don't care what people think. I just want to contextualize it that I'm not reckless around those. I'm, I feel like I'm pretty strong in risk assessment, but those things that I can't control or can't hedge for. So often there's things I can't control in my business, but it is my responsibility as a leader in my business to make sure that I have accounted for them in the areas that I can control. And once I have done that, I just move on. And I did the same thing in school. So one thing I realized, I lose control of my emotional state when I can hear what everyone else is doing. So when everyone else is like, have you studied this? Did you look at this chapter? Did you go back through it? I was like, whoa, that pulls me out of my state. And I actually lose control of myself. And so I was a solo studier. I didn't study in groups of people. I didn't double check what people did. I didn't want to know how they structured their essays because I knew when I stuck out in my own, in my own space, I did quite well. And as soon as I started to engage in the chatter, it threw me off my game. It's one of those things, even in this sort of this last concept, I want to make sure that we tackle how do we manage those people around us who aren't always comfortable with our success or with our progress. Often it's a mirror and it's creating their own, their own emotions and a reflection of their own decisions, which are different. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong. They're just different series of decisions. How do we navigate that? Someone asked me the other day, they're like, am I going to lose friends as I start to engage in this journey and grow my business and do more personal development? And I said, possibly yes. And not just at one junction, 
at many junctions. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really important that we put that on the table. But how do we navigate that? Because a lot of people hold themselves back so they don't need to face that lack of comfort. And I'm going to bring you back to where we started, which is boundaries. And boundaries are physical, they're relational, they're emotional. We have self-boundaries. But in terms of navigating that from a really practical sense, we have to choose what we share and with whom and when and to what degree, like all of that, like those are choices we get to make, right? Like when you say to me, how's life going? Like what's going on in your business? The choice is mine, how much I share with you, right? Based on the context of our relationship, our partnership, or all of those sorts of things. So I think that's the first thing. I think one of the things I notice so many of the women I work with is we feel that just because a person has a certain relationship to us, we've got to tell them everything, right? Like just because it's my sister, I've heard this so many times, I've got to tell her like X, Y, and Z. I'm not an integrity if I don't tell them. Well, no, you don't. You get to choose when and how much and in what context and all of it. I'm not being dishonest if I don't tell you all the details of every circumstance you ask about. No, you're actually being really responsible. You're making a responsible choice for yourself around what that relationship can hold. Can you just say that one more time? I think we have to consistently assess and reassess the bounds of every relationship, every relationship. What can it actually hold? And if I am putting into that relationship more than it can hold, then I am being irresponsible. That was one of those moments like I had, Brene Brown talked of this idea of boundaries. And she said, if you don't have boundaries in place, you grow resentful of the people around you. And being resentful of the people around you is way more disrespectful than compassionately articulating your needs. And it was this, I don't know where I was or what I was listening to. It was probably an audible. It was like this mic drop moment. Like no matter what, you're going to have to step into uncomfortable conversations and personal emotional mastery. You drop the egg, even if it wasn't your intention, you still have the responsibility to clean it up. It's part of leadership. It's part of being an adult. It's part of being able to move forward. And I love what you just shared there, because I do think a lot of us feel we have to, we have to disclose everything. If someone asks, we're dishonest if we don't give them every detail. And here's the thing is people, human beings are dynamic. They're ever changing. And so of course, relationships are dynamic. They are ever changing. And so the relationship you and I hold today is not going to be the same relationship we held. It wasn't a year ago. We had a different relationship. The context, the bounds of the container of our relationship changes. And it's up to me to assess and reassess that so that I'm being responsible with what I put inside of there. Read the room. It's always such a great conversation when we have an opportunity to unpack these pieces. I feel like this is a perfect place to make a transition in the interview. I've got a series of rapid fire questions. I'm calling them metrics of impact. Mm. And my first question for you is having come out of a fascinating two years mm. with lots of things we can't control. What has been the biggest lesson you have taken away personally? I know for me, it's priorities. Life forced me in the last two years to reassess. I think it's something we should be doing all the time. Admittedly, I had not been doing a great job of that uh, prior to the past two years. But the last couple of years has really invited me into a space of consistently assessing and reassessing 
my priorities and making sure that my life actually aligns with those priorities because it doesn't always. How would you define your purpose? My purpose is, I think, primarily to really do the deeper work to lead myself. I probably wouldn't have said that two years ago. I think I've realized that really my purpose is that self-leadership so that I can help others lead with confidence. It's a beautiful answer. And as I'm asking these questions, I realize they are not rapid fire questions. <laughs> they're deep, Meg. <laughs> You're taking me deep. I don't know. If okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to reassess. This is real time influx life reassessment. Who inspires you? I think it's the same answer I probably gave last time. I don't know, but my daughter, like really and truly like that call to lead by example is still, you know, 12 years later, still so deeply inspiring to me. And last question for you, entrepreneurship, are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? I don't know what I am. I feel, I feel this bold to be like, what did I say last time? <laughs> you know, I'm going to say, I think it's a bit of both. Like when I look at my own life, there was always something in me that wanted to think outside of the box, even if that's not how I was raised. I wasn't raised to think outside of the box, but I always wanted to. I was, I was like, what is outside of this box? I was always curious about what lay outside of the box. And then I had to learn the skills to do that consistently. Amazing. Well, you're doing beautiful work in the world. You're helping so many people. Where can we send people to learn more about the work that you're up to? Your new book, The Emotionally Intelligent Woman, your podcast, Confessions of an Ex-Therapist. Where are we sending everyone? I hang out on Instagram. That's the place to go to find me, dr.shamlakiru. I know you'll link all of those things up. The book drops February 7th. I don't know when this episode is dropping, but February 7th, it will be available everywhere books are sold online. Amazing. Congratulations. And so much fun to hang out as always. Amazing, right? I absolutely adore this woman. She is so well-spoken, so intelligent, and just full of these incredible frameworks, this ability to take what we think is this complicated situation with all of this emotion and really break it down into a simple concept, a simple thing for us to work on and hopefully start to overcome. Dr. Shamalan Karu is such a gem. And I want to make sure you have all the information that you need to join her for the launch party of her book. Get your hands on her new book, The Emotionally Intelligent Woman. And you're going to be able to capture all of that by heading on over to meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. You will see all the information related to Shamala's podcast right there at the top. All the links to her Instagram to the book, to the launch party, to the details, to her awesome masterclasses associated with the launch. I know the world can't get enough of Dr. Shamala, and I want to make sure that you are able to access her uh, after what was, I think, an incredible conversation. That is it. That is your call to action this week. If you enjoyed what Dr. Shamala and I got into, if you are interested in honing your skills as an emotionally intelligent woman, you're going to want to check out all of the resources, grab them in the show notes and I will see all of you. We'll talk to all of you, hang out with all of you next week. <laughs>